This is Charlottesville Tomorrow. Charlottesville Tomorrow is a nonprofit organization engaging the public on critical quality of life issues so we make informed choices for our community's future. Visit us on the web at seavilletomorrow.org. The six candidates in the three contested races for local office in Albemarle County appeared at the Senior Center on Wednesday at a campaign forum sponsored by the Senior Statesman of Virginia. The event was broken up into two sections. First, Samuel Miller District Challenger John Lowry and incumbent Liz Palmer took questions from the moderator. Welcome. I'm Terry Cooper. I'll be moderating the candidate forum involving the two candidates for the Samuel Miller District seat on the Board of Supervisors. First, a word about the ground rules. Each candidate will have two and a half minutes to make an opening statement. And by flip of the coin, Liz elected to go second on the opening and closing statements. <laughs> then there will be a series of questions from the audience. And as John told you, these questions should be written out on index cards and brought up to me. And then finally, we'll have closing statements of no more than two minutes. Now, there are lights up here that are visible to the candidate with a timer and all. And Bonnie and John have BB guns, so take them seriously. (laughs) Should we come over there and stand in front of it? (laughs) John, would you begin with your opening statement, please? Very good. I am. Can you hear me all right? Can you hear I'm John Lowry. I am a candidate for the Samuel Miller position for the Board of Supervisors. John, when I heard you talk about Rio, I wasn't sure I was at the right place. (laughs) Okay. Uh, After meeting the lady who I would be married to at William & Mary, we moved up here to Albemarle County 40 years ago, and we've been here ever since. I have three children and six grandchildren. I uh, was a costume guide at Colonial Williamsburg, and I thought that everyone had government service at some point in their life. And so here I am. I'm ready. I, um, while I was working, I was a volunteer. I volunteered for many things in the community, including the county of Albemarle. And I was uh, chair of the airport board when the new airport was built as a gateway to the community. I was chair of the Economic Development Authority for 12 years. We did $500 million in bonds in that time. We had a good run. And I was chair of the Board of Equalization for five years and an election official also. So I got to know the county staff, and I know the county, and it's been fun. But I am running for office because I believe I can better represent the constituents' interests in Samuel Miller District. I am all about balance. I feel like the county's government is not fully in balance. I think we need to have a better balance in our land use, a better balance in how we finance ourselves, and a better balance with economic development. I would like to have things open up in Albemarle County. It's suddenly upon us that we're in a, a drought warning We really need to have a pipeline from the Ragged Mountain Reservoir to the South Fork Rivetta Reservoir because that pipeline goes back and forth, and we wouldn't have this challenge if we had that pipeline. So it's going to be expensive, and I'd like to have us have more connections, open up the connections outside of the designated area for water and sewer. 
I'd also like to have more jobs for young people. I'd like to have more businesses so we broaden our tax base. And so that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. Liz? Okay. Um, and as you know, I'm Liz Palmer, uh, and I am the current uh, supervisor for the um, Sammy Miller District on the Almar County Board of Supervisors. I had such a good time my first four years and feel like we were so successful that I want a chance at another four years to finish a lot of the things that we started. Uh, I am um, a veterinarian of over 35 years. I've been in private practice for most of that time. And I moved here with my kids in the late 1990s. I've been an avid um, uh, uh, hiker and camper and those sorts of things for all of my life. And when I moved here, I was really struck by the, the condition of our water and infrastructure. That is where the built environment really meets the natural environment. And it's very, very important to keep that in good condition to balance the needs of, of the people with the needs of the environment. And so I got very involved through the League of Women Voters at that point in time on trying to get some improvements to our infrastructure. Um, at, in 2006, I asked the then, uh, my then Board of uh, Supervisor Representative Sally, Sally Thomas to, um, to appoint me to the Albemarle County uh, Service Authority Board of Directors where I worked on the water supply plan. I've been um, a very big supporter of finishing the water supply plan that we approved in 2006 and then fought over with the city for five years and then <laughs> fought about the, um, the route of that pipeline for a while, uh, for many years. And it is time to get that pipeline in. Uh, the, uh, I now sit on the Albemarle, excuse me, on the Ravana Water and Sewer Authority, which is a joint city-county uh, board that uh, is responsible for getting this infrastructure in. And like I said, I've been a big advocate to get that, that pipeline in to connect our infrastructure, our current infrastructure, um, with that, uh, the treatment plants with that w additional water that we have. Um, and I am also on the Albemarle County, oops, I have 30 seconds left quickly. I'm on the Solid Waste Authority, Joint City County, um, and I'm also on the Albemarle County Broadband Authority, which uh, deals with um, uh, rural broadband, and I'm also on the Metropolitan Planning Organization. So I'm very interested in coping with the traffic. Yep, I'm, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. <laughs> first question will go to John first, and then we'll alternate so that the second question will be initially directed at Liz. Are they going to be the same question or different questions? You'll both answer the same okay. question. Thank you. And the, the next question will go to Liz first. Gotcha. And it's two minutes, right? Minute and a half. Minute and a half. Okay. Sorry. The county's comprehensive plan limits its growth area, the area in which economic development may occur, to 5% of the county's land mass. Two questions in one. Do you favor or oppose keeping the 5% limit? Second, would you be willing to swap land within the growth area that's clearly not suited for development because of, for example, topographical reasons, for other land that is suitable for economic development. John? 
Uh, that's a big question. Uh, first of all, we don't have an economic development department, really, in the county right now. We don't have an economic development director. I think we should have an economic uh, development uh, new business manager, and we should have an, an economic development real estate manager, and we should have an economic development existing business manager, and Susan Steinmark would be wonderful there. So it's really not a question of uh, the land being enough or not enough. We don't have a functioning department that's doing what's needed to have economic development. Um, the, there's economic, the growth area is, was 5% of the county. Uh, that's 20 years ago. And it's now less than that because it's shrunk by 1,000 acres in the last 20 years. Whereas land under conservation easement has grown from 20,000 acres 20 years ago to 93,000, one-fifth of the county. So that's what I'm talking about when I say things are out of balance. We don't have a balance so that economic development can occur in the less than 5% that we have in the county. Liz? Okay. Um, first question, uh, do I... Um, uh, do, do I approve of the 5% of being expanding in the development area? No. I have a problem with the premise of the question, actually. It says that economic development can only happen in the development area. What we're doing is we're trying to leave the rural areas for rural purposes, and that's very important. We have a wine, a brewery industry. We have farms that are very successful. Um, we're looking right now at, expand, at um, a project to um, have a hops uh, uh, facility that will process the hops from the different farms and distribute that to breweries. Uh, we have cattle operations. We have all sorts of things in the, in the rural areas. Uh, so that is, that's, a, that's an issue right there. It's a big part of our economy. Um, what I do think about conservation easements really quickly is that that allows uh, a lot of farmers to actually keep their land in farming. The acquisition of conservation easements is a program that the county runs. Uh, we don't have much to say about the other ones like the Nature Conservancy and whatnot, but that one is a county-run one, and that allows moderate and lower-income uh, farmers who wish to do this um, to take advantage of conservation easements to keep their land in production rather than go to development. And I don't think I have time to answer the second part of that question, so I apologize. I'll give you the time now because you didn't. And to repeat, would you be willing to swap land within the growth area that's clearly not suited for development because of, for example, topographical reasons for other land that is suitable for economic development? If it went through the Planning Commission and the Comprehensive Plan Review, I would certainly be willing to look at it. I think that that has to be looked at a holistic view because of legal considerations that we have in the county. And, that's, and the legal considerations are very important when we make these decisions about land swapping. And just for the record, for my little bit of that time, too, uh, I would agree that it could be swapped hypothetically. It's very hypothetical because it would only really work if it were contiguous to where the comp plan is now or in the Crozet area. So it's, it's a very a hypothetical thing, but the supervisors and the planning commission should be nimble and entertain um, a chance to 
make things better. Next question will go initially to Liz. In your opinion, can light manufacturing bring in revenue that exceeds the cost of county services for it and its employees? If so, what conditions would have to obtain for that to happen? This kind of gets to that, does growth pay for growth? And when you look at it on an individual basis versus a county-wide basis, um, which which is an issue to begin with, um, light manufacturing in the right areas can definitely be a benefit for this community. Um, we are looking for jobs for um, for light manufacturing and a variety of different um, job levels. Uh, right now, we um, we know that residential growth does not pay for growth unless it is a house that's well over $600,000. That's been point. I'm sorry, what? Somebody asked me a question. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, so, yes, it can. I don't know that I can go through all those conditions in a minute and a half, quite frankly. Um, it would have to depend upon the situation, whether they want tax breaks and whatnot. I have, uh, I have issues with um, paying companies to come here. I think the board really has to look at that as an issue of using tax dollars to pay for companies to be here. So if it is, um, but I certainly know light manufacturing jobs at um, companies that are here now that simply are a wonderful addition to our community. John? Okay, the question's about light industry. Got it? Okay. Um, of course, light industry can cover its cost. It'll do it one of two ways, more likely. Immediately, it'll be a good payback. Or the county is a partner investing in that light industry, whatever they do, and sooner or later, the tax revenues will pay for itself. So, yes. But this brings up a greater question, because Liz mentioned a couple times there that she didn't believe that growth pays for itself. And she gave a talk here at the Senior Statesman less than a year ago. It's on your website. It's on a podcast. And the premise was costs, the growth does not pay for itself. She based her uh, statement on a model, an economic model for the county called CRIM. Look it up. Cost Recovery Impact Model. That model, uh, I looked at it, and it was obviously amateurish. And I've learned that the Planning Commission and the uh, advisory board, ask staff for a more dynamic model. And then I got a, a memo from staff later on saying that Liz uh, had misrepresented the growth statement, falsely interpreting an old county fiscal impact model that is no longer needed, no longer relevant. So uh, growth does pay for itself. It's a question of whether it pays for itself immediately. Just look at Stonefield or uh, Fifth Street Station, or Georgetown Road, where the uh, new uh, out-of-bounds real estate is, it paid for itself immediately. Or it can be an investment, or some things would not be good. And <laughs> that's the job of the supervisors, to not do those things that pay for themselves. Boy, I know I can't have a rebuttal, but okay. <laughs> Sorry, Lynn. This one uh, goes initially to John. Every conservation easement the county grants reduces the amount the Commonwealth contributes to county schools because the formula the Commonwealth uses to calculate how much to give each locality's schools 
the composite index, is based in part on the taxable value of its land, but doesn't consider how the grant of a conservation easement reduces the taxable value of that land. Should limits therefore be placed on how much county land can be the subject of conservation easements? John? Well, the answer is no, because I believe that people who own their property should have the right to do things that they would like to do for themselves and for generations after them. But it's a very good question because the composite index is affected by land going under conservation easements. And I'd already explained how we've gone from 20,000 to 93,000. That's one-fifth of the county under conservation easements. So I'm very different than Ms. Palmer on how I feel about the acquisition of conservation easements by the county. The county is using taxpayer money to pay people that have land, lots of land, but they're cash poor. So it's a transfer from taxpayers' money over to the people who, who won't then develop their land. I absolutely disagree that taxpayer dollars should do that, and here's a good reason. We, it affects the composite index for the county on how we get our schools funded. So the answer is yes, but I or no, I don't want to change conservation easements, but I definitely want to stop the acquisition of conservation easements by the county. Liz? Okay, again, the majority of conservation easements in the county are private. They're from the Nature Conservancy and Outdoors Foundation. So the county's program is targeting these lower income, moderate income folks, so that they too can take advantage of this. This whole idea is premised on the fact that cows don't go to school. And um, if you don't have those roads, if you don't have buildings out there, it costs less for the county. We know, um, I can't, as far as the uh, growth pace for growth and the CREM model, um, there are some problems with how exact it is, but it is very clear that you have to have a house over $600,000 for that to actually, for the people that live in there, the average people to actually pay for themselves. So um, we know we do not want residential development in any extensive form in the rural areas. We don't want an apartment complex in the rural areas. We don't want a hotel or, or some big development in the middle of the rural areas. It does cost, so conservation easements actually save the county money. And it also helps promote uh, when you preserve that land for agricultural use. It helps um, the, the wine industry. It helps our tourism. It helps all kinds of other economic development uh, opportunities in the county. So I am very much in favor of keeping the conservation easement program. It's relatively modest in, in comparison to the larger. Next question. For 30-plus years, there's been a revenue-sharing agreement between the city and the county, under which, in exchange for the city's promise not to annex county land, which it can't anyway, the county gives the city a share of all its tax revenues, even from land far from the city. That results in the city losing $15 million or more each year, and also in the county's share of state education funding being less than it would otherwise be because the formula, the composite index, doesn't take into account that the county must give the city part of its tax revenue. The city the money or the county? The county. 
the city must give the the county must give the city part of its tax revenues. Efforts have been made to void the revenue sharing agreement, or at least to negate the adverse effect that agreement has on the county's share of state education funding. Would you support either or both of those efforts, i.e., to void the agreement or at least to negate its adverse effects on the county's allotment of state education dollars? Liz? Okay. Um, First of all, the revenue sharing agreement was voted on by the citizens of this county, and that's an important fact. We had a referendum. The citizens at the time voted for the revenue sharing agreement. We are told legally that there's nothing we can do about that revenue sharing agreement as far as voiding it. So I wouldn't be very, I wouldn't be in favor of trying to do something that's against the law. I don't do that. Um, but um, what I am in favor of, and I have talked to counselors about this, and I think that hopefully we may even get somewhere with it, is to start using that revenue sharing money for things that benefit the city and the county, like some of our transportation needs as you go over the line. There's a lot of um, congestion problems in the periphery, periphery that will help the, the city with um, congestion, traffic congestion, and help the county folks get to jobs inside the city. So I'm very much in favor of uh, pursuing that. As far as the um, composite index on the state level, um, the understanding is that that's going to be very, very hard to do on the state level because there's a finite amount of money, and that will take away from not just the city, but it'll take away from other localities around the state. So because it's a finite amount of money, it's very unlikely that that's actually going to be um, championed in the, uh, in the General Assembly. Josh? Uh, revenue sharing. Uh, it is a contract. It was very poorly written, looking back. It, uh, the people who did it are uh, the fathers of the city and the county and the attorney. They're still with us. Um, and I wish it had been written so that there was a sunset in the agreement. We did that on the Economic Development Authority. We created a source of revenue for the county, but we tried it for three years before we had the law change by the supervisors. It, it, it does not have a sunset. Uh, the only way to break the contract would result in lawsuits. So then the next step is you go to the Virginia legislature and have a legislative change. That's still going to result in lawsuits, and so it would be tied up in the courts for years. It's going to be very expensive. Uh, as far as the uh, uh, composite indexes goes, that is correct. It, it is diminishing Albemarle's representation in the composite index, so we have less money for education. But if it was changed for Albemarle, it would need to be changed for everybody else in the Commonwealth, and there are a lot of ramifications there. But still, the solution is to start at the legislative level above us and then have it be decided in the courts. Next question. There are intersections in the county, for example, 250 and Owensville Road and the 240-250 split. Uh, where traffic is horrible. How is traffic considered or addressed, if at all, in terms of designated growth areas? Yes. Um, Traffic is um, a thing that the supervisors deal a lot with. 
I'm definitely for in favor of uh, connecting roads, making traffic move more smoothly. But the question is about Owensville Road and Tillman Road outside of the designated growth area. So the two are, are oil and uh, water. They're, they're different. Um, it's the state that eventually decides what needs to be done. The supervisors uh, participate in the Metropolitan Planning Organization, and we have a hierarchy, a list of things that we want to have done. So if the traffic isn't happy where you live, you need to talk to your supervisor. Supervisor goes to the MPO. We try to have it, that thing have more visibility on what's done in Albemarle County. But the state ultimately decides what's going to be done, both outside the designated area and inside the designated area. Yes. One of the first things I did when getting on the Almar County Board of Supervisors was get to know our resident engineer on VDOT. I spent an awful lot of time in his truck with him driving all around the county. And um, as somebody who pulls out from Owensville Road on 250 every single day, I know how horrible it is, especially in the morning and especially when I see young people pulling out on their phones and I have heart attacks. Um, but um, anyway, uh, as far as the 250 Owensville Road is concerned, John's right. It's VDOT that really makes the decision, but we try to prioritize it. So what I'm told about 250 and um, Owensville Road is it's very, very difficult, as you know, for those, of you, those that live out there. There's a train trestle. There's um, a couple of other roads in the Ivy area, and it's very problematic with the cliff, et cetera, to get anything in there. Um, I pushed for some kind of traffic light for quite a while, but that didn't go, and I'm going to be out of town, so I'm out of time, so I'm going to flip to the 240 to 50 uh, intersection. We did find some money from that, actually, with the help of VDOT, of course, who is uh, looking into some rural road um, uh, funds because of, uh, of another road that comes right into that intersection. So they're looking right now at designing a roundabout for that area. Some people are a little bit horrified at a roundabout, but um, I keep telling myself VDOT knows what they're doing, and they usually do. So. Last question. Liz, this question's for you, but John will have an opportunity to comment after you've answered. Liz, you've received the endorsement of Together Seville, an organization affiliated with the Indivisible Movement. To get their endorsement, you had to complete and submit answers to its issue questionnaire. Will you share with the voters your completed questionnaire by posting it on your campaign website before the end of the week? Yes. I think I can do that as long as they give me the answers to the questionnaire. I'll be glad to do that. You didn't submit answers yourself? Oh, I did, but I, That's what submitted, I'm it. I submitted it online, and they, they have it, so I don't have a copy of it. So what I will do is I will contact them for my – I did not keep a copy, and that's – that's what I did. Um, but I'll be happy to ask them or for that and put it on my website. I have no problem with what I put on that, that whatsoever of sharing it with anybody who would like to see it. John? Yeah, I did get the invitation from uh, Together Seville. I'm not sure many of you all know about it. I didn't. <clears throat> and they have a very um, clear uh, focus on what they'd like to have as answers to their questions, and they, a lot of them did not apply to me. So I did look it over very thoroughly. I did not respond to the survey. Um, 
I guess it'll come out. But to me, many of the questions were not appropriate. I'd just like to go back one minute to the VDOT and the engineer. The county does hear from VDOT a lot. And we uh, had a request from them to have our water supply allowed at their location at VDOT Way east of town. And that's an example of what I was talking about earlier in opening up connections. We told VDOT, no, you can't have county water because you're not in the designated area. They wanted to have water because sometimes they need to put 50,000 gallons into tanks on trucks with a saline solution and get it out quickly when snow is about to happen. But we told them no. They, we go to VDOT and ask them all the time for things, begging, and they came to us one time and we said no. So we need to offer water and sewer connections where there are already pipelines that are not in the designated area because it'll help pay for this expensive pipeline that's going to be built between the reservoirs. Now it's time for closing statements. <clears throat> Two minutes, Max. John, you're first. All right. I, I want to thank uh, senior statesmen for having this uh, forum. <clears throat> thank you, Terry Cooper, for hosting. Thank you, Professor DeMong, for putting things together. Thank you, Senior Center, for allowing us, and thank you, audience, for being here. I agree with my opponent that Albemarle County needs leadership to solve the challenges we face. <clears throat> I am the only candidate in the race that has that necessary experience. I have experience with and for environmental organizations, chairing the Albemarle County's Board of Equalization, where landowners come to question and challenge their tax bills. I have experience as the chair of the Economic Development Authority. The sole purpose of the authority is, to quote, to promote industry and development by inducing manufacturing, industrial, government, nonprofit, commercial enterprises, and institutions of higher education to locate or remain in the county and to further the use of the agricultural products and natural resources, unquote. I have the experience as a financial manager over 40 years that has taught me to work with a cross-section of individuals and groups for the betterment of our county. My opponent's experience is with one segment, environmentalist, an important segment, but not one that lends itself to working with competing interests to find the balance that we need. To her credit, she has proudly portrays herself as an environmental activist, and although I respect her truthfulness, uh, it hardly lends itself to working with those in our community who are not environmentalists. My opponent has said that growth does not pay for itself. And it's not true. It alienates those who make their living developing land that the county has placed in the growth area. So I have the experience with successfully working with diverse groups to make us a great community. I ask for you to give me the privilege of serving you as Samuel Miller, Miller District Representative on the Board of Supervisors. Vote for me on November 7th. Liz. Okay. I keep trying to lift this up. Um, so why you should vote for me. Um, I have, I actually have a great deal of experience in a lot of different, uh, in a lot of different areas. And I think I've talked about some of those. It's not just water and sewer, but water and sewer is the basis for economic development. You have got to have a good system for that. You've also got to have good, um, places to bring your trash. You have to have, um, broadband in rural areas. Your 
children can't uh, can't do their schoolwork. People can't start businesses. It's you know you can't work from home if you don't have broadband. So my emphasis has always been on basic government services that are required by the folk, by the people of this area. Um, while looking at the problems of growth, which are congestion and uh, difficulty getting around everybody. The, as I do my constituent services and I go door to door, the number one thing that I hear about is could you please make sure that when we do have growth, it's in the right place so that I can to continue to get around in my car or walking, etc. So this Board of Supervisors has really put an emphasis on economic development, but they've put an uh, emphasis on that economic development in the right place by redeveloping some of our asphalt fields on 29, by putting sidewalks in, by putting um, the wonderful connection of roads, on 29 North that allows people to get to their business, get to businesses more efficiently. So this is not a board that I serve on or as an individual serve on a board that is against economic development. It is about balancing that economic development with the needs of the whole community and making sure that our rural areas stay healthy and open for agricultural uses and open spaces and our uh, and all the businesses and uh, I gotta stop. <laughs> so vote for me on November 7th. Thank you. Please join me in thanking Liz Palmer and John Lauer. The event then shifted to the second section of the afternoon. Welcome to the uh, second of the candidate forums. This is a candidate forum for the school board. A forum for the two contested school board races in Albemarle County. Katrina Carlson and Mary McIntyre are vying to succeed Pam Moynihan for the Rio District School Board seat. Graham Page, the incumbent school board member for the Samuel Miller District, is facing challenger Julian Waters, a 2017 graduate of Western Albemarle High School. I'm going to introduce the uh, four candidates, and the questions that I will ask uh, will come from the cards that you're all filling in and sending up. And um, I'm going to do it in alphabetical order initially, and then I'm going to reverse the alphabetical order. So I'm going to start uh, first with the Rio district and then Samuel Miller and, and starting in alphabetical order. So the four candidates that we have, two running for Rio, two for the Samuel Miller. On my immediate left here um, uh, is Ms. Katrina Carlson. She's a graduate of Yale, Boston University School of Education, and UVA Law. She's a former teacher with Teach for America. She volunteers for Kids Give Back. To her left uh, is Ms. Mary McIntyre, alumna of UNC Greensboro, who holds a master's degree from the University of Michigan and the University of Hawaii, uh, Manoa. She uh, has taught in North Carolina, Virginia, Hawaii, and volunteered at schools in Tanzania. To her left, uh, is Mr. Graham Page. He's the incumbent for the Samuel Miller, and he resides in Esmont. He's a graduate of Hampton University with a master's degree from UVA. He's a retired Albemarle County uh, teacher from Western Albemarle uh, High School. He's a trustee of the adult Sunday school teacher and organist at the new Green Mountain Baptist Church. 
And then to the far left of mine, your right, uh, is Mr. Julian uh, Waters, a 2017 graduate of Western Al Mall, making his first run for elective office. He's been active in educational policy issues, a regular blood donor who founded the Model Aviation and Drone Club at Western Al Mall uh, High School. Um, so here are the ground rules. They're exactly as we had with the Board of Supervisors. Um, each candidate will have two and a half minutes for their opening statement and, and one and a half minutes to answer the questions, uh, which will be read by me. Uh, there will be no rebuttals. And finally, each candidate will have two minutes uh, for their closing comments. Um, I'm gonna, as I said, I'm going to start in alphabetical order, so let me pose the very first question to Ms. Carlson, and then, what's it? oh, the opening statements. I'm excited. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get, yes, I'm going to be mad at my husband because my last name used to be Preston, and now I'm Carlson, and I'm, I'm up first. I would have been in the middle before. Uh, my name is Katrina Carlson, and I'm excited to be running for the Albemarle County School Board, Rio District seat. Three important things to know about me are that I care about children, I care about my community, and I care about education. Education has always been important to me because both of my parents dropped out of high school, and I saw them struggle with the effects of that decision for my whole childhood. And during that time, they made sure to stress to me the importance of hard work, the need for service, and the value of getting a good education so that I would have better opportunities than they had. Those values are what pushed me to attend Yale University when I thought that college was impossible for me, and it's what motivated me to serve with Teach for America. Teach for America was great because it put me, it allowed me to become a full-time math teacher. It afforded me the opportunity to attend the Boston University School of Education, and it surrounded me with people like myself who believe that education is one of the best chances we have to deal with systemic inequities in our society. It also exposed me to many of the difficulties facing the system, and ultimately, I felt like I could be an even more thorough advocate on behalf of children if I got a legal background. So I came to UVA Law, and I focused on child advocacy. I was a CASA volunteer. I interned at the Child Protection Unit, and I spent my whole third year as part of the Child Advocacy Clinic, which allowed me to work with children who were being denied educational op opportunities. Excuse me. After graduating, I wanted to go back into the classroom, and so I got a job at Buford Middle School. I also became pregnant with my second son and decided to take time off to spend with my own children. My oldest son is starting at Agner Hurt next year. His brother is right behind him, so I have the next eternity of 6 a.m. wake-up calls, but also investment in our local public school system. And I know that here in our district, we have a changing demographic. Over half of the students entering our elementary schools are low-income. Our Urban Ring Elementary Schools are low-income, and that number is expected to grow. Now is the time to put someone on the board who has a proven track record of working on behalf of children and our community, who has multifaceted experience in the educational field, and who knows through my own personal experience how important it is that we do not let demographics become destiny. We need to make sure that not only are our children graduating, but they're graduating with clear pathways to career, educational, and personal success. I'm going to stop with that. I am looking forward to diving deeper into the issues, and thank you for having me. Ms. McIntyre. Um, I'm Mary McIntyre, and I am also running for the school board in the Rio District. Um, I'm a teacher and a mom, not a politician, so all of this is very new to me. 
Um, I started teaching in 2003 and then met and married my husband, who was in the U.S. Air Force, and we started traveling the world for his career. So I haven't had a traditional education career as far as that's concerned. Um, but as he said before, I've actually taught in four other places before my husband retired, and we settled here in Albemarle County to raise our family. Um, my husband works in military intelligence, and we have two children. My daughter is in fifth grade, and my son is in second grade at Woodbrook Elementary. So I'm bringing to the table not just the perspective of a career educator, but also of a parent with children in the schools right now. And I'm the only candidate running for the school board this year who has children that are currently in our schools. Um, as we traveled the world, and I worked in so many different school systems, I've discovered that there are some things that are universal truths about public schools everywhere. Um, first, every child wants to learn, and every child can succeed. But across the country, we are having, a, we are having problems meeting the needs of all students. Um, even here in Albemarle County, we're struggling with an achievement and an opportunity gap. No one has found the solution that completely solves that problem. And I think that that is because we need to address systemic, economic, and social injustices in our society, including the school-to-prison pipeline. And until we do those, we are not going to fix the achievement gap just inside of our school buildings. Another universal truth is teacher and staff pay. Low teacher pay leads to higher turnover, burnout, and teachers who are working two jobs who can't dedicate their all to the classroom. It leads to teacher shortages, like what is going on in Richmond right now. And low hourly staff pay is an issue nationwide. Here in Albemarle, we're struggling to keep enough bus drivers, custodians, cafeteria workers, and after-school care providers. And those are vital jobs that keep our schools running. The last universal truth I've seen is just that the majority of the school boards across our country are filled with people who have little to no experience in public education. Our own board is no exception. What would happen to our public schools in this country if we decided to elect people who have dedicated their lives and their careers to public education, people who have been in school buildings recently? What would happen nationwide if the people deciding where our budget should go, what our priorities should be, and what standardized tests our students should take know those answers because it affects them personally? I ask you to think about that. Thank you. Mr. Page. Good evening. And I also would like to thank the senior statesmen and, uh, for having us this afternoon and, and all of you for attending. Um, when I received um, the announcement about this, I was told that as an incumbent, I should talk about the accomplishments that I'm most proud of and the issues that I can see within the county that's most pressing. So I have two accomplishments that I'm most proud of since serving on the school board. One of the accomplishments is the completion of phase one re renovations at Red Hill Ele Elementary. When running for the school board in 2015, I was committed to making sure that every student in the county received the best possible education that our system could provide. In order to do that, I realized that parity would have to be accomplished among all of our schools. One of the schools most in need of renovation was Red Hill Elementary in North Garden, a school that had, received, had not received any major renovation since 1982. This major project was started in 2016 and it was a joyous occasion for Red Hill School and the North Hill, uh, Garden community when a formal dedication and open house was held on, in February 2017. Being on the board doing the planning and funding for the renovation and then participating in the dedication ceremony is an accomplishment that I'm really proud of. A second accomplishment that I'm proud of is the expansion of our foreign language program in elementary schools. 
Over the last two years, French classes have been started at Meriwether Lewis and Spanish at Woodbrook Elementary. I visited a kindergarten class at Meriwether Lewis and the Spanish immersion class with first graders at Cale. And even though I'm really uh, proud of the idea that we have expanded that, I was not proud of the fact that I was like a duck or a fish out of water. I knew nothing at all about what was going on either in the French class or in the Spanish class. <laughs> so that's something that I'm not proud of. The two things that I'm most proud of highlight some of the successful things that we are doing in our county schools. And we are doing a lot that's good. However, while preparing to run for the board in 2015, and since being on the board, I've become more and more aware of some areas in which we need improvement. Four of these areas are, in my opinion, the most pressing issues that, that are faced by Altamont County Schools. The first of the pressing issues is the closing of the achievement gap within the schools. Even though we are highly successful in many areas, an examination of data will show that we have an achievement gap. So I'm about to receive the gong, so you'll have to wait for the other three. <laughs> now I will ask the first question. And again, I'm no, going to do an alphabetical. Oh, I'm too excited. <laughs> Mr. Water. Um, good, good, good afternoon. I'd like to start by thanking the senior statesman for hosting this forum um, today. Uh, my name is Julian Waters. Um, I've lived in Alamo County for my entire life. Uh, I was born in 1999, so I just got in, and I can call myself a, a 20, 20th century citizen. Um, uh, <laughs> but in addition to living in Alamo County for my entire life, I've also gone through the public school system here in Alamo County. Um, and if there's one thing that I've noticed, it's that change in the school system is constant. Um, for years, our county has thrived off of a strong vision for the future, and under that vision, our schools and our communities have flourished. However, there's still work to be done. Um, with the retirement of our superintendent, Dr. Pam Moran, uh, she, she, she told us at, at the meeting that she announced her retirement that it's been, that we've done a lot of great work, but we still have work to do. Um, and as we continue to move forward, I believe that it's critical for us to have perspective on the school board that has had relevant and recent experience in the classroom. Um, I firmly believe that I can speak accurately to the issues faced in Amaral County public school classrooms because for the past 13 years of my life, those issues have been my own. Um, I know that my perspective um, and experience uh, on the school board and, sorry, my, my, my perspective and experience in the classroom and also in my three years of policy advisory experience to Amaral County um, can help me to, 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 to lend a voice to the school board and can help us to realize the positive uh, vision that's already in place and truly make it a reality uh, for each and every student. Um, my, my priorities stand um, in... In, in three different categories. I really need to believe that we need to prioritize equity. And my vision of equity is that we're expanding our public preschool system uh, so that we're engaging students in early childhood education and closing the achievement gap from, from an early age. It's a long-term investment that we need to make that will have a, a completely positive impact uh, when it comes to secondary school and well into to, to the future of our students. The second issue for me is, is access, uh, reforming our transportation. I know there's a lot of work to be done when it comes to providing transportation for our students to KTEC and to our three high school academies, and there's work that needs to be done there. And the third one, uh, which is critically important to me, is understanding and recognizing and rewarding teachers because they truly are the single greatest asset that we have available to us in Albemarle County. Thank you. Thank you, indeed. Um, now I will go to the first question. <laughs> Ms. Paulson, if you will, given the... Uh, pay study that was released this summer about Elmaw County. Uh, what changes do you see for uh, 
teachers' pay or compensation and benefits? I think that absolutely we need to prioritize making sure that our teachers feel satisfied and that we can retain and recruit top teachers. Um, currently, I guess I'm sure not everyone in the room knows what's going on with teacher salaries. Um, currently, we try to pay them in the bottom of the top quartile out of a selected group of divisions that we compare to. And we got through the school board got 300 letters from teachers saying that they were unhappy with their pay. And so we hired a, a consultant to look at our pay structure. And the outcome was a recommendation that we're actually doing pretty well with teacher salaries, but if we want, we can change the group of schools that we're comparing ourselves to. Um, my personal goal is always to look at outcomes. That's what I've done in my life. I'm focused on the end goal, and I think that we're doing a pretty good job of retaining teachers. I, the 300 letters, though, mean that I do think we need to take a good hard look and see um, if we can make improvements. And I would, it always comes down to the bottom line, I personally would prioritize teacher salary over other areas that we could be spending money on. I really think we need to be supporting our teachers and making sure that they're happy. Thank you. Ms. McIntyre. Yeah, thank you. Uh, teacher pay is obviously really important to me, um, and I'm, I'm a little biased because I am a teacher, um, but I'm also the child of two retired teachers. And so um, growing up, you know, money was not flowing freely in our household. Our budget was always pretty tight. Um, my mother worked extra jobs in the summer. Um, back when you had to get your pictures actually developed from the film, that's what she did all summer was work in the, in the photo lab. Um, I, the consultant discovered that, you know, our pay is competitive um, for teachers at the master's level up until they reach about 15 years of experience. And once you've gotten to 15 years, maybe halfway to retirement, um, we really fall down. Uh, we fall below our comparison market. And so they're not making as much as their peers across the state. And that's a really tough time in someone's life when you've gotten about halfway to retirement and you're starting to feel like you're actually taking home less money. Um, our health costs are also going up. The amount of money that our employees are having to contribute to uh, the Virginia retirement system is also going up. So some people's pay, take-home pay, has actually stayed the same. Um, we really need to get our, our teachers' pay back up to where it should be so that we are level with all of our peers across the state or even higher. I have no problem with us being one of the better-paying school systems because I think it actually elevates the profession of teaching and it would recruit higher quality candidates and it would retain the higher quality teachers that we have who we see a lot of them burning out and leaving teaching to go find a higher paying job. Thank you. Mr. Page. Um, like Ms. McIntyre, I too really uh, understand completely what our teachers are doing because I taught for 25 years here in Albemarle County. Uh, most of the time I did Western Albemarle. And in that niche study that was mentioned, um, we found out that our county probably ranks about third best in Virginia when you look at similar counties with similar programs. And um, like Ms. McIntyre also mentioned, we do really well probably. And then there's a big difference between us and some of the other uh, school systems in the state that compare to us. And so I'm, too, in favor of really doing as much as we can to try to make sure that our teachers are being well paid in order to keep all of our good programs in operation and to make sure that we stay competitive. We have to make sure that we recruit the best teachers and also that we retain the best teachers. Um, there has been a shrinking pool of teachers uh, 
within maybe the last five or ten years, people that's in college that's uh, intending on become teachers have become a very, very small pool. And so that means that here in Outmile, we'll have to really make sure that we are able to sort of recruit some of those people and bring them into the county. And if our salary is not competitive, we're not going to be able to do that. So I'm really in favor of doing as much as we can to make sure that our teachers are well paid for the good job that they are doing. Thank you. Mr. Waters. So I, 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 I do want to stress that, that what's been talked about with, uh, with keeping our market competitive is extraordinarily important. When it comes to, to being an attractive uh, employer for teachers, not only within the state of Virginia but across the nation, um, it's important that we have a, a competitive uh, advantage over other school systems. Um, and so I think that, that Mr. Page and, and, uh, and, and, and Ms. McIntyre addressed that um, very comprehensively, and so I'm just going to move on to, to, to my personal opinion on this. Um, we, we, we really can't settle when it comes to teacher pay. Uh, I, I will say that I'm opposed to the current system of using a competitive market when a first-year teacher in Albemarle County cannot afford the cost of living. This means that those teachers are, 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 are out of the county or they're rooming with other people out of the county and they're not paying taxes, they're not giving us their business, but more importantly, they're not feeling valued as educators. And that's difficult. We need teachers who are invested in the, in the classroom. We need teachers who, who are excited to come into work every day, not, not, not teachers who are, who are struggling, struggling to get by, not teachers who are worried about being able to, to pay their bills or pay their insurance. Um, I, really need, I, I really believe that, as I said before, that we need to recognize that teachers are the single greatest asset that we have available to us when it comes to instruction, even if that comes at the cost of, of other items on, on the budget. And I think that that value needs to be reflected uh, in, in teacher compensation. Thank you. As I said, I'm going to reverse the order, so I'm going to start with the Samuel Miller uh, District and start with Mr. Waters. And the question that I have first is, what are your thoughts on the combination of grade programs, Woodbrook and Agner Hart? Is that a solution for school overcrowding? Uh, so so I, I believe that that's in reference to the multi-age programs uh, that, that are in place at those presume. elementary schools? I would presume. And um, so I, I think the multi-age is it's an incredible uh, program. Um, certainly when we look at it, um, I would be hesitant to say that, that it works 100% um, and that we should expand it um, a, a, a across the entire district just simply because not every program works for each student. Each student learns individually. Um, when you look at some of the multi-age um, uh, improvements that have been done to schools like Woodbrook and like uh, and, and, and Red Hill actually, which, which had a, a multi-age classroom uh, given to it as part of the uh, Phase One construction, but that when it comes to overcrowding, I think that multi-age classrooms are an excellent way for us to make um, as much use of the space as possible. It's an incredibly efficient uh, use of of space within these schools. And so I think that as we continue to grow in terms of capacity, in terms of enrollment, the multi-age classrooms in, in the elementary schools are a great way for us to look at alleviating overcrowding concerns. Thank you. Mr. Page, same question. Um, I'm really in favor up to a certain point of combination of creatings. Ordinarily, it really works well because usually the different ages of kids would be able to sort of teach each other in a sense. The older kids would be able to sort of act as models or guidance mentors in a sense for some of the younger ones. So usually that method would work really well. I'm not really sure whether it would work in order to uh, be able to help us with overcrowding because we'd still have the same number of kids within that school. So it's not going to really help with overcrowding necessarily, but it really could help with, with instruction. Ordinarily the method works really well. It's been able to do well at Red Hill and also at some other schools here within the county. So it won't necessarily help us with overcrowding, but overall it is a good method of instruction within the classroom. 
Thank you. Ms. McIntyre. Uh, I worked part-time for part of last school year at Agner Hurt, and so I have seen the multi-age program at Agner Hurt, and it is working really well. I've talked to a lot of really happy um, parents, and I've talked to some teachers who are very happy in their teaching situation. But the thing that we have to keep in mind is that the program at Agner Hurt is not the entire school, and they're talking about transitioning Woodbrook to the entire school being multi-age. Um, so I think that that's one of my concerns about the, the proposed changes to Woodbrook Elementary. Um, I know students at Agner Hurt who have had to be taken out of the multi-age pod because it's not meeting their needs. And a lot of those students were special education students with IEPs 504s. Those students at Woodbrook, where would they be put if the entire school is a multi-age situation? Those are answers that we really need to have. And the fact of the matter is that there is no peer-reviewed scientific research that shows that multi-age situations are best for every child. I'm not completely against multi-age, but I think that it doesn't work for every student. We need to make sure that we are acknowledging that. Um, the good thing about multi-age, though, is that it allows for a better differentiation in the classroom setting. So teachers can break the students into smaller groups and ability grouping rather than just age grouping. And so the students who finish something and are ready to move on can go ahead and move on instead of having to wait for the rest of the class to catch up to where they are. Um, yeah, so I think that we have some valid questions and we need to have some answers from the school system as far as what their plans are for next year before we proceed with this multi-age program. Thank you. Ms. Coulson. Yep, I'll start off by saying I don't think multi-age programs are a solution to overcrowding. I will echo many of the points that Mary said. Uh, primarily, I've knocked that se on several doors where families within, within the same family, they have had kids that uh, did really well in the multi-age program and then ones that did not. And so I think making a whole school multi-age is problematic. We need to look at children as individuals and give them options where feasible. The other problem I have with multi-age is that I don't think the bomb referendum, which is where they got funding for that, um, adequately stated that that was the goal that was going to be happening um, when they made that expansion. And I do not think that uh, multi-age classrooms are research-backed. Mary mentioned that people with IEPs might struggle, although I think there will be some addressing of that by the fact that not all multi-age classrooms look the same. Some can be very small and not as chaotic. They can still be multi-age without being four classrooms in one big open space. Um, and there are a few benefits, such as uh, if kids are struggling, they don't get held behind and they don't have to deal with the repercussions of falling behind their peers. They can stay in the same classroom and presumably have time to catch up. But overall, I'm just not happy with the way it's being rolled out. It's spending money on something that's not research-backed, definitely not community-backed. I've knocked on hundreds of doors in Woodbrook, and people are upset that it's happening. And, yeah, I just think we need to make, make sure that we're putting in money our money into things that um, we know are going to have an impact on student achievement, and that's not one of them. Super. Thank you. And this so first question will go to Ms. Coulson. Uh, what are your thoughts on redistricting, and if you are a parent, have you felt any impact in redistricting on your household? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> My neighborhood has been up for redistricting three times in the past five years. Um, my son is supposed to be starting at Agner Hurt next year. I don't know if he's going to be going to Agner Hurt or Woodbrook. I've been going to the redistricting meetings. I've been going to my neighborhood redistricting meetings, and it is not clear to me where my son will be going next year. That's problematic. I wrote that on my Facebook page, and I had my cousin who lived on hydraulic, grew up on hydraulic, wrote me and said that when she was in school, she was redistricted three times while she was in elementary school. And the end result was that she didn't form connections, she didn't form friendships, and she didn't form a bond. And right now, she's not in Charlottesville. She moved to D.C. 
um, she moved out of this town because we're lacking that kind of grounding of your roots if you're constantly having to switch schools. Um, so, yes, it has affected me personally. What I want to see happening is I want to have redistricting goals that are longer than three to five years. That doesn't even see a student through a school. Um, the long, I met with someone on the long-term planning commission, and they were talking about how for planning commission we set goals that I think are about 10 years out, and then we set strategic goals that are 20 years out um, and other com components of the government. And then for our schools, we say, let's see if we can figure out three to five years from now. I think those need to be aligned so that we can have, I mean, people buy their houses based on what schools are going to be attending. That shouldn't be up, uh, up on the ballot every, uh, every two years. And on, to speak to a personal issue, which is equity, oh, it's an advocacy showdown, and I feel like wealthier neighborhoods get uh, a lot of their issues heard and lower-income neighborhoods do not, and I think that's problematic when it's constantly being put up. Thank you. Ms. McIntyre. <laughs> <laughs> I'll gong myself. Yeah, where's the gong? <laughs> um, no, I agree with you. I think we need longer-term solutions. Um, I do feel like this is a constant process of whack-a-mole with the county, where they say, oh, it needs to be adjusted over here, and then, oh, well, we really need to adjust it over here. Oh, but then we messed up over here. And, you know, I, I think that this is really um, – it's putting a lot of strain on our school communities. It's hard for teachers, too, when you think that half of your school might be gone next year or when you constantly have an influx of students in and out. Um, it's hard for parents to really get invested into a school community. I know some parents at Agner Hurt who say, why should I donate any money for a playground when my kids may not even get to play on it? And that's a valid thing for them to think. So, you know, I think longer-term goals are absolutely um, something that we should ask for. And what's been concerning to me about the redistricting process is they're really just reducing our children to numbers. They want to just solve the capacity problem, and they're ignoring the resources that each school has and the academic achievement um, that the schools have. Woodbrook is a focused school with 350 students. That means that we have at the moment about 55% of our students are economically disadvantaged. We have a very, very big achievement gap. And we have a hard time at, our, at Woodbrook, they are having a hard time meeting the needs of the students they have. They're talking about doubling the amount of students that need extra resources next year. So it's hard for me to say, yeah, sure, you can just ignore the fact that there are all, a lot more students that need resources when we aren't meeting their needs right now. I think that the redistricting committee cannot ignore those. She talked a lot longer, but that's okay. <laughs> Thank you. Mr. Page. Um, as has been previously stated, um, redistricting is really a tough, tough issue. And every parent, no matter which school they are probably in, that parent and probably the kids there feel that they're at the very best school possible. So it's really sort of a no-win situation to have the redistricting issue coming up. Um, it's a really tough issue, and it's one that really can't be solved easily. There are a whole lot of factors that come into play. And uh, on the school board, I was, uh, since I won my seat on a special election, uh, the election was probably on about the November the 3rd or 4th of 2015. And my first meeting was probably on about November the 5th or 6th. And on that first meeting, I came up into a really hot issue of uh, voting to whether or not to send the kids from out my, uh, over to Monticello. And there was a huge amount of controversy with that. And so being sort of baptized in my first meeting with that, I realized that it's a really tough situation. There is no easy answer. 
And sometimes we might have to really make that tough decision and redistrict kids into an area that they may not really want to go to. But it's still a really tough issue. It's really multifaceted. And it's very hard to reach that decision to send kids. But it's still a decision that we might have to make at some times. And Mr. Waters. Um, so re- <laughs> redistricting is, is – there is really no alternative to it when we look at, at long term in terms of alleviating overcrowding or, uh, or, or projected en- enrollment growth. Um, you, you can't just keep building one school up in terms of capacity and leave the other one um, at, the, at, at the same capacity that it currently is. Re- redistricting is something that's bound to happen. But the current and aggressive rate of the micro-redistricting that occurs in the county looking at two or three schools, two or three elementary schools, and doing that every three years at, at, at a minimum review period of every three years for redistricting to occur, it tears apart communities. It tears apart friends. It tears apart sports teams. Um, teachers, teachers who get used to students or students who get used to a school community or parents who get used to to the school community. It's, it's incredibly damaging. Um, and, and, and that's something that I've heard from, from neighbors, uh, from friends, and also from a neighbor who's on the Long Range Planning Commission, that, 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 that the micro-redistricting is a process that really needs to stop. Um, and so I, I've developed what I like to call the three-stage plan for how we deal with, with the redistricting issue. The, the first one is, is that we need to stop playing catch-up when it comes to, to our expansion projects. Um, when we're looking at our school, school expansion projects, I really think that we should be using the Weldon Cooper UVA projections um, for enrollment growth and using those to have a rolling process for architectural review um, and approval of school expansion projects so that we're not saying, oh, it looks like we're over capacity by 50 students. Now let's start looking at what we can do to fix it. I think it needs to be a process that happens three or four years in advance. Um, and, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well, actually, there was another question that came in, which is a nice follow-up, and it leads very nicely because you started your three points. What is the ideal redistricting process and plan? So I, I get to start again. Start. Okay. Yes, um, so so I'll, I'll lead right off of uh, right off of the uh, <laughs> right into the second step of, of my plan. So so obviously the first one um, is having that rolling review process using uh, the Weldon Cooper projections from EVA, which which um, uh, for, from what I've seen are, are more accurate than the internal projections that are done by by our county staff. I'm not saying that our county staff are great, but the EVA has a lot of resources available to them that they can utilize perhaps more effectively than than we can. Um, and so and so working in conjunction with them and making that review process ongoing is critical to ensuring that we have um, a, a capable capacity at all of our schools. The second step um, is, is try to more accurately pinpoint where development is occurring, especially when you look at uh, where the boundary lines are for the districting between elementary schools and trying to pinpoint that development so that we can evenly uh, manage where our enrollment growth is going to occur between two or three different schools. And then as a result of those two steps, we can ultimately increase the review period for redistricting to six years um, unless there's some, some emergency that comes up with, with, with overcrowding, but increasing that review period to six years um, so that you can have a student start at kindergarten and go all the way through to fifth grade without being redistricted. That would be the ideal situation. Obviously, you can still be redistricted once within that six-year period if you happen to be caught in the middle, but at least increasing it so that the, so that the redistricting is not happening within three years or as often as possible. Thank you. Mr. Page. Okay, that is a really, really tough question. I'm not really sure whether that animal exists that would be an ideal redistricting model. Um, The only thing, I'm really sort of floored by the question, the only thing that I can think of is that maybe we try to keep our buildings. One thing that happened within the county is that um, when the recession hit, 
we didn't begin to build. We didn't use, uh, take advantage of that situation and try to use maybe lower rates to do some expansions on some of our build buildings. So one ideal thing would be that maybe we should try to look at all opportunities that we have to um, increase the sizes of some of our buildings, especially in the urban ring of the county. Except for that, I really can't think of any other ideal solutions. Mr. Waters' three points are very, very good. <laughs> but I'm not really sure whether or not there is an ideal way of coming up with redistricting. Right offhand, I can't think of one. If Thank I you. do, maybe I'll try to let you know. But right offhand, <laughs> I can't come up with one. Thank you, do. Ms. McIntyre. Yeah, I think that if anybody knew the solution, then we would have already done it. Um, so it is, I don't have the perfect answer for that either. Um, one of the things that I think that we really should try to do is avoid split feeder patterns where you have um, elementary schools where half of them end up going to one middle school and half of them go to a different one. Um, that is hard on the community too. Uh, that's not the ideal situation, and we do have that going on right now, but when you look at what the solutions are for solving the split feeder patterns, um, it messes up the capacity issue. So you have to keep it all in mind. Um, obviously, community input is really important. Transparency is huge to me. I'm hearing from people that they are constantly finding things out at the last minute or after decisions have already been made as far as the county is concerned. And so I think that the more community input, the better. Um, this current redistricting committee only really has one meeting where they're inviting the public to come and talk to them. The public can come and listen to every meeting, but as far as input or feedback on the process, that's towards the end of the process that they're asking for that feedback instead of all the way through. Um, last, I just want to say, because of where most of the affordable housing and growth is in our county, we really need the Board of Supervisors to be aware of what we are setting our schools up for. And their future decisions need to be guided by the knowledge that our schools in the urban ring are basically bearing most of the burden of the growth population of the county. And so I'm not saying that they need to move the growth to other places, but they also need to be cognizant of the limited resources our schools have. Thank you. Ms. Colson. Yeah, I would just reiterate a lot of the things that basically I think we need to be less reactive and more proactive with our districting. Um, so yesterday, my husband, he's been having to watch our kids a lot because I've been knocking on doors. And he was making soup, and he accidentally put in hot sauce. And instead of scrapping it, which my kids are never going to eat, but instead of scrapping it, he kept just trying to add things. Like, well, maybe if I tweak this, it will make it work. Maybe if I throw this in, it will make it work. It didn't work. Um, and so when I go to these redistricting meetings and I only see three options, I feel like maybe one of the things that we can do is just really take a comprehensive look at the districting that we have in the urban rings so that we're not constantly doing the micro redistricting. I also will elaborate real quick on the point that I had, which is that there needs to be community input from all um, from all people involved. There are you are not allowed to speak at the redistricting meetings. Luckily, my neighborhood has a very strong advocacy network, and we hold individual meetings where we make our concerns heard to our neighborhood representative. Um, I would love to see that happening in all communities, so that we don't end up with communities that are constantly on the losing end and communities that are constantly on the, the winning end. So let me change the uh, topic dramatically. What is your view on how much homework is appropriate? <laughs> Since wow. I suffered as a kid. None. No. <laughs> That's what the kids would tell me. Uh, so I taught at a school where it was mandatory to give our kids 30 minutes of homework a night. Okay. I was a math teacher. 
The problem with that was there were a few things. One, if they walked out of my classroom not having the competencies that they needed, they spent 30 minutes struggling through homework and reinforcing incorrect knowledge. If they didn't know what they needed to know, they spent 30 minutes doing rote practice of something they already knew really well. And no matter whether it was the latter or the former, when I got 90 students who handed in 30 minutes of homework, I had enough time to look at about one answer per sheet and check, did they do it? So I am okay with homework, but it needs to be done in a way that is actually effective and boosting student achievement. I do not think we need to be giving homework just to give it. And in that, with that in mind, I would, I do think it's okay to limit homework. I'm, I think it would depend on the level in the classes. If you're in high school taking AP classes, getting prepared for college, and you need to be able to, uh, to sit at home and go through your homework and do what you need to do. But if you're in seventh grade, what I, what I taught, and you have two hours of homework a night, that's too much. Thank you. Ms. Mayhew. Right. Well, I think it's, it's definitely um, individualized as far as what students need. Um, and so there are some students who need more practice than others. But what's interesting, uh, I have two kids. My second grader loves to have work to do. He's always asking me for things to do. So sometimes I will give him, make a little practice worksheet or whatever, and I give him something. My daughter in fifth grade wants nothing to do with anything related to school the minute she gets off the bus and comes home. Um, and she's going to be shocked next year in sixth grade when she probably has a lot of schoolwork that she has to work on. Um, research shows that homework, the, the amount of homework, the minutes, or what it is you're actually doing, doesn't really affect the outcomes for students. And so we really need to follow what the research is telling us, that piling on hours of extra work at the end of a student's day, if it's not going to significantly affect what they know or what they can demonstrate, then maybe it's just not necessary. Um, in North Carolina, the school where I worked in Raleigh, we actually were not allowed to grade students on any work that they did outside of the school day or outside of the school building. Homework was for practice only, and we didn't have to grade it. We could ask for them to turn it in so we could see how their practice went, but we weren't giving any grades on the report card. I think that's an interesting perspective for people to take towards homework. Certainly, you can give it to the students, but don't include it in the grade that they're getting at the end of the year. Thank you. Mr. Graham. Uh, Mr. Page. Okay, flashing back maybe to that ideal um, redistricting policy, I did think of one thing when someone down there made another comment. Uh, we, do, we are planning meetings. The school board and the planning commission of the county are planning some meetings so that we would be more aware of maybe where development is going to be taking place. So that could give us sort of a heads up and a way so that maybe we won't need as, need as much redistricting. That doesn't solve the problem. It's not ideal, but that's one thing that we are trying to look at. Then going to homework, um, quite a few parents in the county began to complain because uh, kids, especially that were in AP classes or in upper-level classes, ended up having a whole lot of homework, sometimes even doing uh, holidays, like some teachers who were really, really aggressive would give homework over Christmas break, and somebody would end up being able to read or do some really extensive assignment throughout a holiday period. And so we had a committee made up of some students, some parents, and some teachers who came back and gave us some solutions or some recommendations, rather, on homework. And for each level, from kindergarten all the way up to AP classes in high school, they gave uh, recommended times that each teacher should be allowed to sort of give homework, how long that homework should take. 
So this isn't like an ideal thing again, but still that committee did have some pretty good recommendations with probably more time being expected with higher level classes and much less time in elementary school or lower level classes. Thank you. Mr. Waters. Ars gratia artis um, means art for art's sake. <laughs> what I think too often what we have is homework for homework's sake. Um, it's, it's, I, I think that too often there's an expectation that homework is the way that classes have been done for years and homework is the way that we're, continue, that we're going to continue to do classes for the foreseeable future. And I think too often that homework, even if it is the best intentioned homework in the world, does not always have a, a, any substantial learning value to students. Um, I think that the, the best experience for students is, is really going to be doing work in school. Um, it's going to be working with their students, with, sorry, with, with their fellow students and with their teachers. Um, one of the things that I've heard from, from, from students um, when I was at Western um, is, that, is that, well, you know, and, and this is uh, specific to, to, to some of the AP classes. They're like, well, well, I learn way better when I'm in a study group at school during lunch. And when I get home and I'm by myself, you know, if I have a question, the textbook doesn't always answer it. And then I wind up looking online and it's wrong. Um, but, but also, uh, when we look at students who live out in rural areas of the community who are less accessible, they're on an hour-long bus ride. And when they get home, um, the amount of time they have to do homework is... is is significantly less. Um, so so it, it really is a plethora of issues when you talk about the homework policy, but I don't think that the homework always needs to be the answer to everything. And I don't think that it always, is always beneficial either. Thank you. How do you expect, what, what do you expect for the revenues and cost of our educational programs over the next four years, and do you see any major capital expenditures investments coming up? Sure. Um, so, so, um, our, our current budget has seen an increase in our technology expenditures over the past several years, and that's a result of our of our one-to-one -one program, uh, which gives every single student a laptop, and that's part of our technology initiative, uh, which I think can certainly be beneficial. When we look at um, our primary funding concerns, uh, and we look at the reducing fiscal responsibility between the state and federal government especially, um, I, I think that that's an issue because it means that we're more and more on our own. Now, Currently, the federal government only makes up about 3% of our, of our annual budget. Um, but the state does make up a significant portion of our budget. And, and with expenditures um, for us staying the same or increasing as we have more and more students to serve, um, I think that it's critical for us to continue to advocate for, for the same, if not more, shared fiscal responsibility. Um, I'm not sure if, if some of you are aware, but uh, the federal government is actually, they just uh, announced that they are cutting off sex ed funding for, for public schools, um, which, which is an area that they, they provide specific funding for some of those initiatives. And I think that it's important that we continue to have um, shared fiscal responsibility in, in specific areas such as SPED, such as uh, the sexual education, um, and, such as other, and, and other programs in schools that we might not be able to otherwise fully fund without the help of those outside um, uh, revenue sources. Thank you. Mr. Page. Um, our revenue... Probably about 27% of our funds for the county schools come from the state. About 2 or 3% come from the uh, federal government. And the other 70% comes from here with the local funds. So um, the state may be doing the recession probably in 2008 and 2009, really cut back on the amount of money that they were sending to the county. And um, since that time, they really haven't tried to make up that gap between what they are giving us at that point, and what they would be giving us if they were still following that same formula. 
So one thing that we really would be facing, one problem would be um, state funds coming in to really help us on the local level. Um, some of the main expenditures probably that we might face over the next few years will be first doing something with Albemarle High School and maybe some other schools too, depending on what a project um, high school 2022 and some other uh, things that we are looking at would involve, whether or not we'll build a new high school or maybe do something else within the county. So that would be one major expenditure. Then another major expenditure would also be our teacher um, salaries. We have to do something to make sure we remain competitive so that we can bring in the very best teachers into Albemarle County and keep those good teachers. So those would be probably the two main expenditures that we'll be facing over the next few years. Thank you. Ms. McIntyre. Well, as far as revenues are concerned, um, Mr. Page is right. You know, the, the state funding has not recovered from the recession. And we are actually really lucky here in Albemarle County because the Board of Supervisors have made up that difference for us. They have really prioritized education funding. And 63% uh, of our county's budget goes to, to our schools. That's big. That's a lot. But that tells you our community's commitment to education and how important it is. So we haven't yet had to make cuts. But, you know, the federal percentage of our budget, sure, it may only be 3 or 4%, but a lot of that money goes towards special education services. And we don't have that 3 or 4% to make up if it goes away. It's providing thing like, things like full-time aids and adaptive technology for those students that really, really need it. So we need to be concerned about the federal portion. We really need to uh, to lobby our state legislature to fully fund our education budget across the state. That's really important. As far as major expenditures, I have heard that they do intend to ask for another bond referendum, and it will be for um, increasing capacity because we do have an exploding population in the growth areas of our county. Um, I know Crozet Elementary needs an addition. The Western feeder pattern is going to need um, some, their high school is projected to be overcrowded in the next 10 years as well, joining Albemarle that is already overcrowded. So we are going to have to put some investment into our schools to make sure that we are able to provide the best for all of our kids. More of the same coming from me. Uh, I had the opportunity to tour a lot of the schools, and I had a lot of principals telling me they were worried about overcrowding. That's definitely going to be on the horizon. Also was at the special advisory, um, excuse me, special needs advisory committee last night, staying up late, um, and they were talking about losing some services next year that they need to be replaced. So those are things that are going to be coming down the pipeline. I, have, I would imagine the biggest capital expenditure is probably going to be making a decision about the high school, which is near and dear to my heart because by the time it's built, that's probably going to be where my sons are uh, <laughs> attending. That's great. And last question uh, before we go to the closing. Last question will be, what are your views on charter schools? Yeah. So I think charter schools can be um, beds of innovation. Well, first, let me start off by saying that in Virginia, we only have public charter schools. So a charter school falls under the purview of the school board um, and receives funding the same way. It's not owned by not-for-profit organizations. Um, and I have knocked, so we have one charter school here in our community, Murray Charter School, that I have knocked on the doors of three people who have told me a story of where they were struggling at Albemarle High School. One of them in particular said that he was ready to drop out when he actually got kicked out and sent to Murray, and he ended up finding a mentor who he could relate to, and he graduated. He went to college, got a master's, and got a career that he loved at 26. That's the role that charter school schools can play. They can allow us to test out innovative uh, pedagogy, and they, could, they can allow us to individualize our education. I am by no means advocating that we should put charters everywhere, but I think we have a pretty good system going here in Virginia, and if there's ever a need, 
So, for example, when we closed Yancey um, and that affected the Esmont community, I think that would be a great place where if there was a community organization that wanted to get together and organize and get a charter school in there, that's where they could do it. Thank you. Ms. McIntyre. Yeah, we actually have two charter schools in this community. We also yeah, have I corrected it to say just the ones I was talking to. Yeah, community public charter school, um, which is our middle school equivalent, and they're actually in the same building. So I think they they um, get combined a lot of times. I, I'm not completely against charter schools. Um, I think that they can sometimes serve as a distraction, um, and people think that they are the uh, solution to struggling public schools, which is not always the case. Um, in our community here, they're filling a need. They're filling an area where we have students' needs that aren't being met in their traditional school setting. And so I think that that is really important that we have access to the charter schools that we have. I will only support charter schools if they're under the jurisdiction of their local elected school board. I think that that is really important to maintain local control over the schools in your community. I will only support them if they meet all IDEA regulations for the services that they should provide to special education students. And a lot of charter schools in other places are not required to do that. Oh, I will only support them if they are transparent about all of their funding, including the pay for all of their executives, if they provide transportation to students who don't have it, and free and reduced lunch to the students who cannot afford lunch. If charter schools are doing all of that and hiring only licensed teachers, then I will support them. Thank you. Mr. Page. Um, like uh, has been mentioned before, we do have two charter schools here in the county, Mary and the community school. And both of them are doing a really good job. The only problem that I would have if, is that if the charter school is being um, controlled by the state, if it's being controlled by our state uh, board of education rather than the local school board, it, uh, within the local school board, we'd have a whole lot of control over what goes on within that charter school. And uh, if you've never been to one of Mary High School, which is our charter high school, one of their graduations, you should try to go. It's probably one of the most inspiring graduations that I've ever been to. Each one of the um, kids has a chance to let a teacher or some mentor speak on their behalf. And it's just a really moving experience to be able to witness one of those high school graduations. So as long as the charter school is being controlled by our local school board, I'm completely in favor of them. They do an excellent job to fill in some of the gaps that our public schools, other schools, traditional high schools, or elementary schools may not be doing. Thank you. Mr. Waters. I, I, I agree that charter schools need to fall under the purview of the public school system um, and, and, and under the local school board. Um, char charter schools, as everybody else has said, do fill a necessary gap. They, they provide alternatives to students who may not learn well in the traditional learning environment. Um, I actually had the opportunity to meet with the, with, with the new principal uh, of, of Murray CPCS um, this, this past summer. Um, and so, so Chad, Chad Ratliff, uh, who, did, who, who works at the Almond County Central Office as well as being principal, uh, moved in to, to, to help make some new changes. Um, and I think uh, it, it was either Miss um, Carlson or Miss McIntyre who said that, that uh, charter schools, our public charter schools, can be an opportunity for us to test new learning methods. Um, the Twitter handle for, for Murray and Community Public Charter is actually K-12 Albemarle Lab. 
Um, so so, so that, that probably gives you a little bit of an idea. Um, but it really is a bed of, of new learning uh, experiences, uh, new, learning, new learning opportunities, and innovative new methods for teaching. And from what I've seen, um, that the, the, the new administration and, the, and, and, and uh, Mr. Ratliff as the new principal is really going to do a tremendous job of doing his best to make sure that all those opportunities are available to students and that our community public and, and that our, our community charter schools are doing uh, the job that they should of providing an alternate experience for students. So now we'll move to closing comments in two minutes each, uh, starting with Mr. Waters. So we're going to go to reverse order. All right. I, I'd like to again thank the Senior Statesman of Virginia for hosting the forum this afternoon. Um, I, I really do want to stress again um, that that I think that we have an extraordinarily positive vision in Alma County for the future of our school system. Um, when our schools are strong, our communities are strong. Um, you can see that in property values. You can see that in how connected uh, the neighborhoods are to their school communities. You can see that in how all the parents are, are excited to go to their to their fourth graders' soccer game or, or to go and see the, the art show that's going on in the middle school. Um, and I think that it's important for us to realize that with, with the vision offered um, from someone who's been in the classroom, who knows the relevant and recent issues that students and teachers are facing, um, and, and that I can strike a balance between my 13 years of experience in the public school system and my, my years of experience um, as a policy advisor at Alma County Public Schools and truly uh, bring the perspective that we need to truly realize the vision that we have in Alma County and make it a reality so we can serve each and every student, teacher, community member, um, and everyone who's involved with the public school system. Thank you. Mr. Page. Um, again, I come uh, with 25 years of teaching experience here in Alma County, uh, four years on the Long Range Planning Committee. And so I think that that's really some pretty important criteria to think about. I've truly enjoyed serving on the school, uh, county school board since my election in 2015. During my tenure, I've visited school classrooms and programs that have truly let me know that our school system does an excellent job in educating most of our students. But my visits have also made me aware of some improvements that we must, must work on within the system, improvements in our curriculum and improvements in our facilities. Among the excellent programs that I've witnessed are the language immersion classrooms at Cale and Meriwether Lewis, the presentation of issue projects by government classes at Mary High, and the robotics and computer program, programming projects unveiled by students in the National Junior Society of Black Engineers mm -hmm. at Albemarle and Burley. Um, at the same time that the board is working to maintain our programs of excellence, we must also confront the problems that exist. One of these problems is a racial and socioeconomic achievement gap that exists in our county classrooms. There are provisions in the 2017-18 budget that will contribute to the achievement gap being closed and being solved within the Urban Ring Elementary Schools. And any solution that we find there can be sort of expanded to other schools within the system. Then as a result of the board's action that was taken in May to close Yancey, another important issue is to make sure that we sort of monitor what's going on with the kids from Yancey that's now at Red Hill and at Scottsville to make sure that they are really reaching their goals and that things are being uh, positive with them at those two schools. I really uh, am anxious to sort of begin working again on the school board during the next two years. I think that all of those projects that I've mentioned are very, very important to me, and I really hope that I'll have your vote and support on November the 7th. Thank you. Ms. McIntyre. Well, I do want to say that running for office has been um, a scary 
and very hard, but amazing and fulfilling experience for me. Um, I, we've had to learn this from scratch, and uh, it's, it's been difficult, I won't lie. There have been sacrifices that have had to be made, time with my children. Um, I didn't start working this school year because I wanted to have time to focus on this campaign. And to be honest, I miss it. I miss teaching. I miss students. Uh, but I feel like what I'm doing and the potential to serve on the school board is worth it. Um, it means that much to me. So, you know, I do want to say that it's been really eye-opening to learn all the different people that are involved in every decision that has to be made in order for teachers to be able to do their job and for our schools to function every day. I wish that everyone in this room had an opportunity to learn all of those things. Um, my passion is education, and it always has been, and it always will be. I have no interest in any other office. The school board is where I can see myself making the biggest impact because that is my area of expertise. Um, I don't have all the answers, though, but I do want to be part of the solution, and that's why I'm doing this. Um, I've heard so many people say, well, I don't have any kids in the schools, so I don't really have to pay attention to the school board race. And I say to those people, you are a taxpayer, and today's students are going to be your neighbors tomorrow, your future employees, and one day they're going to be deciding the direction of our country. And so it, real, it is very important that every person pay close attention to every election, even at the lowest level, um, which is the school board. Thank you. Ms. Colson. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you for the wonderful questions. Um, talking to people has been the favorite part of my favorite part of campaigning. I love getting out and getting to listen and to hear the concerns and questions that people have. So thank you. An hour ago, I started off by saying I care about children. I hope that's come across in my answers. If it hasn't come across in my answers, I hope it's come across in my actions. I, like Mary, have dedicated my career and education to working on behalf of children. I would continue that same hard work and dedication were I to be elected to the school board. We need as many people as possible on the boards who are hardworking, on our school board, who are hardworking and who are focused on children and improving their outcomes. I want a representative who is responsive and willing to listen, someone who is making sure our kids are having better academic outcomes and getting clear pathways to career, educational, and personal success, and someone who knows how important it is to make every dollar count. Um, the bottom line is it all comes down to the bottom line, and so we have to prioritize, and my, prior, my priority is children, our children, and not grammar, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I also, I just feel like I have to take a second to say that I um, am also very committed to being on the school board, and I do not have any plans to run for further political office at this moment, but perhaps Mary knows something that I do not. I need to let my husband know uh, <laughs> that I have plans for the future. So that's me in a nutshell. I'm a mother. I'm a teacher. I'm someone who knows how important education is for creating a better future for all of us. I'm going to be on the ballot on November 7th, and I humbly ask for your support and vote in the coming weeks. I used to be able to say months, but it's, it's coming up fast. Thank you. Thank you very much for your great answers to all of our questions. As, as, you can, as you can see, we've got four great candidates, and I very much appreciate uh, all four of them uh, for being so candid and open. Our next uh, senior statesman of Virginia meeting will be on November 8th, the day after you vote for one of these four candidates, November 8th, and it will be Nick Sargent, who will talk about economic policies of today and its impact on voters 
and investors, and it should just be fascinating. I've heard him speak, and it should be great. So that's on November 8th, Wednesday, and we'll do our normal time at 1.30. Uh, so thank you all very much for coming, and thank again to the candidates. So.